You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. But hope is something else, you see, because hope is not spectatorial, it's participatory. You're already in the mess, you're in the fault. What are you going to do? Hope is a verb as much as a virtue. Hope is as much a consequence of your action as it is a source of your action. Hope is something that you find in your immersion and you decide you're gonna fight it till the end. Hey, I'm Sigal Samuel, co-host of The Way Through. This summer, Sean Illing and I are taking turns talking to philosophers and spiritual leaders who can help us navigate all of our current struggles against COVID, economic collapse, racial injustice, and maybe even find something meaningful along the way. My guest today is Cornell West. For decades, he's been one of America's most prominent and provocative Black intellectuals, known for calling out racism, predatory capitalism, and unjust policies wherever he sees them. He wasn't shy about critiquing President Obama over his drone policies, and he's definitely not shy about critiquing President Trump now. West is a professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard. And he's also got a brand new podcast called The Tightrope, so check that out. In this conversation, West and I talk about the pandemic and white supremacy and some potential tools for dealing with them. We discuss Black liberation theology, which took off in the 60s and basically emphasized that God's number one concern is for people who are being oppressed. West is a Christian who's really steeped in that theology. Just a quick heads up, throughout the conversation, he repeatedly returns to the idea of chesed. So FYI, that's Hebrew for loving kindness. It's a pretty central theme among the prophets in Hebrew scripture, and West really draws a lot on that prophetic tradition. But West is also steeped in a bunch of secular philosophical traditions, from Marxism to existentialism to pragmatism. So I ask him what those traditions can teach us about how to handle our current crisis. We cover questions like, how can philosophy help us confront our fear of mortality? Is the pandemic weakening or strengthening white supremacy? What's the difference between hope and optimism? And why does West say he's not optimistic, but he is super hopeful? By the end of this conversation, I actually felt more hopeful myself, because West is obviously an intellectual guy, but he's also just really fun and joyous. 
So I hope you'll enjoy this as much as I did. Here's my conversation with Cornell West. Dr. West, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you today to talk to. Well, I'm just blessed to be here. And I tell you, your reputation precedes you as one of these high-quality intellectual sites (laughs) on this massive social media that we have these days. You're very kind. We're really excited to have you. And I want to just dive right in. Let's dive right into the hard stuff. Absolutely. We've been through some really, really hard months. And... I wonder if you could just start by giving me your kind of top-level analysis. How would you diagnose the crisis that we see convulsing American life right now? Well, I want to begin by first just noting the passing of my dear brother, Michael Brooks. I know you all know him as well. I was just on his show, planning to be on his show in August. Uh, I was just shocked when I heard that he he had passed, and uh, he was in so many ways such a serious, organic, intellectual I think things are, are getting so bad that we have to focus on what fortifies us. Uh, uh, it's not even a question of thinking about victory uh, in any serious way, but it's a matter of how do we sustain the struggle. And there's a certain victory in sustaining a high-quality struggle that's founded on integrity, honesty, decency, uh, and service to others. So what are the layers? Well, on the one hand, you've got an empire that is experiencing spiritual decay, moral decline, driven by greed, especially in high places. Hate being used as a divisive way of pitting citizens against one another. And then you've got corruption, not just in the White House, but it's corruption really throughout, throughout our institutions. And so, uh, uh, on, so then when the pandemic hit, and we began to see just the raw reality of the empire and began to see the indifference toward the vulnerable. You began to see the healthcare system and all of its frailty, what my dear brother Bernie Sanders was pointing out with such uh, courage uh, just a few months ago during the campaign. You began to see the wealth inequality. You began to see the white supremacy, the male supremacy that the Me Too movement, among other movements are pointed out. You begin to see the ways in which precious trans people are, are perceived and devalued and gays and lesbians being dishonored. You just begin to see the ugliness, but you also see resilience, people in the streets, mm-hmm. people waking up, some people even recognizing, lo and behold, America is an empire. It's just not a democratic experiment. It's a democratic experiment, precious against the backdrop of imperial expansion, especially the dispossession of land of indigenous peoples built on both that land and the genocidal attacks and the enslavement of Africans and on white brothers who are working with no property, women in private households, uh, uh, domesticated, no access to public life. And we began to see... mm, These chickens are all coming home to roost (laughs) all at the same time. So you got these depression-like levels of unemployment and underemployment. You've got the old-fashioned gangster in the White House. And then you got the history coming back on us and the pandemic all at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's what I meant when I said America. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment, uh, which was not to say that there's some other grand experiments out there that are so highly successful. It's just our conception of ourselves of being so exceptional 
is being shattered. Our conception of ourselves as somehow being innocent is being radically called in the question. It's, it's a hell of a time to be alive. It really is. It certainly is a hell of a time to be alive. And yes, I think we're seeing the shattering of American exceptionalism. We're seeing this sort of spiritual decay. We're seeing the racism. We're seeing the collapsing of the healthcare system. All of these chickens coming home to roost, as you say. And at the same time, we see some public waking up. We see some resilience. We see some imagination and courage. And so I want to talk about how to really tap into the latter. And I think there are a bunch of different faith traditions and philosophies that we can draw on for wisdom in a moment like this. And I'd love to really talk about Black liberation theology in particular, which really drew on the thought of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and others. Dr. James Cohn, who I know is a great friend of yours. Oh, yeah. You know? My dear brother. Your dear brother, yeah, the theologian who founded Black Liberation Theology in the 60s, he described this theology as an interpretation of the Christian gospel from the perspectives of people who are at the bottom in society, the lowest racial and economic groups. And he encouraged Americans to reimagine Jesus as Black. And he drew parallels between the crucifixion of Jesus and the lynching of Black Americans. So talk to me about Black liberation theology and the role that you think it can play in today's fight for racial justice. Do you think it's providing or it can provide the spiritual scaffolding for this movement? It could certainly be one dimension in the leaven in the loaf, in the democratic loaf. Uh, and by democratic loaf, I mean any ideology that keeps track with humanity of people that believe in the empowerment of those slash don't cause everyday people raising their voices so they can shape their destiny. But when you talk about Jim Cohn, you know, I met Cohn in 1977. He's one of the great giants of the 20th century, the founder of liberation theology in the midst of the American empire, in the belly of the beast. He comes out of Jim Crow, a good bucket Jim Crow, Arkansas and made his way to PhD at Garrett, right outside Chicago at North, Northwestern, and then for 50 years was the theologian at uh, Union Theological Seminary, one of my dear uh, institutional homes. Uh, but I think in order to understand Jim Cohn's two things, one is we got to go back to Hebrew scripture, mm -hmm. because Hebrew scripture itself was one of the great moments in the moral revolution of the species. Unlike the Greeks, unlike empires and dynasties, uh, the Hebrew scripture comes along and says, to be human is to spread hesed, to spread steadfast love, to spread uh, a loving kindness to the orphan, the widow, the motherless, the fatherless, the poor, the persecuted, the oppressed, and that I am going to be a God of the oppressed, of a hated people, a haunted people. Of, of Jews under vicious domination and oppression. But I make a covenant with you. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with that God. Now, Jesus comes right out of that prophetic Judaism that was at work in that covenant. And so when Cohen talks about this particular Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, who is building on a conception of being human. I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. The kingdom of God is within you, and everywhere you go, you're going to leave a little heaven behind. You leave that heaven behind because you are leaving some love. You're leaving some justice. 
you're leaving some sense of service. You are giving yourself. You're denying yourself. You're donating yourself. You are sacrificing yourself for something bigger than you in a covenant with a God that says, what you do unto me, you do unto the prisoners. What you do for the poor, you do unto me. What you do to your oppressed, you do unto me. Now, James Cone then comes along in the most barbaric century, the 20th century. Hundreds of millions of folk killed. Hit a Stalin, European colonialism. Cone comes along and says, lo and behold, there's also an oppressed people in the midst of the American empire who have made a covenant with a God who have fallen in love with a Palestinian Jew named Jesus. Mm-hmm. And this Jesus, when he makes his way, he's a country boy, when he makes his way from Galilee into Jerusalem, what does he do? He weeps for Jerusalem. Jesus weeps. Socrates never weeps. He argues. He's got intellectual integrity. He ain't got a lot spiritually going on. If he never cried, he never loved. Jesus weeps like Jeremiah. And making his way to Jerusalem, what does he do? He runs the money changers out of the temple. Serious business. So you don't see that on the, on, on the walls of churches. No, not that Jesus. No, 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 no. You get a domesticated, deodorized Jesus. That's the Constantinian Christianity that becomes Christianity as a state religion. But the Jesus that Cone is talking about is running out the greedy, the indifferent, the callous, the powerful who are using their wealth and power to oppress poor people. He says, now look at it from the vantage point of African slaves in the United States. Look at it from the vantage point of Negroes under Jim Crow. Look at it from the vantage point of black folk on the new Jim Crow, that there is a morality and a spirituality that we must stay in contact with if we're going to deal with the variety of catastrophes that we're confronted with today, ecological catastrophe, nuclear catastrophe, economic catastrophe of wealth inequality, political catastrophe of corruption and neo-fascist gangsters like Trump and others. This idea that we need to fight for the wretched of the earth, the, the least of these, the orphans, the, the widows, the oppressed. And Cohn in particular, he based a lot of his theology on, you were mentioning Hebrew scripture, on God's deliverance of the Israelite slaves from Egypt. And he compared the U.S. to Egypt, and he said the same God that fl- freed the Israelite slaves from Egypt is working for the oppressed Black people in the U.S. today. But Here's a theological thought experiment for you. Yes. When the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt, they went into the desert and finally they were free. And yet they complained and they expressed a yearning to return to Egypt. I'm curious what you think would be the equivalent now among today's campaigners for racial justice of that yearning to return to Egypt. Well, I think we really, we get it from the uh, the genius of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. He used to say, if you view life as a gold rush, you're going to end up worshiping a golden calf. Mm-hmm. And so under commodified conditions in which you view yourself as wanting to win the rat race, the, the winner of the rat race is still a rat. You haven't attended to your soul. You haven't cared and nurtured something deep inside of you in terms of character and virtue. So you can end up with all the money in the world all the mansions, all the trophy spouses and so forth, and still be as empty as can be, very much like the Israelites 
who got fearful. And we understand. I mean, you know, for 40 years, long time. And you wonder what's going on. And they wanted to go back because they wanted security. They wanted comfort. They wanted a certain safety. Mm-hmm. Well, you see, religious faith is not about safety. It's about living dangerously. It's about living against the grain. It's about looking at yourself through the lens of something bigger than just your peers. You're looking at yourself through your peers. You're always going to suffer from anxiety and insecurity and various kinds of fears because we human beings are mortals and we're always fearful in some way. We're thrown in space and time. We all have a death sentence in space and time. Nobody gets out of space and time alive. That creates anxiety. So you have to have something that's deeper that allows you a certain source of being fortified so that you you know you're always already in battle, but you feel as if you have a calling, a vocation, something that's tied to something bigger than you. Now, also, of course, see, Professor Cohn, my dear brother Jim Cohn, he comes out of a, a tradition of Black people where the first public gathering of free Negroes, 1830s, Henry Highland Garnett, he had one leg. He standing up on one leg. He said, he tells them he's one of the great, great prophetic figures. He tells them, black people, never confuse yourself with that of the Israelites in the Old Testament. For us, Pharaoh is on both sides of the bloody Red Sea. See, that's a different twist. Every morning you wake up, you will be in some pain because there's no way of conceiving of how you're going to overthrow this white supremacist regime. It's slavocratic form, predatory capitalist form, uh, and so forth. So you're going to have to learn how to be a person of integrity, honesty, decency, and serving others with no real guarantee and hard to believe that you're ever really going to win. And you see, we see that, of course, in Hebrew scripture, because when our Jewish brothers, when the Israelites got to Canaan, there was already somebody there. Right. So what happened to the Canaanites? Well, you see, from the vantage point of the best of prophetic Judaism, the Canaanites have the same value in the eyes of God that the Israelites do. You see, that's what that, that's what Heschel's wrestling with in the prophets, his great classic, the prophets. So how are you going to actually have a hypersensitivity to the suffering of everybody, not just mm-hmm. your group? Not ones that just look like you, believe the same way you do, have your sexual orientation, have your national identity. No, we're talking about every human being made in the image of God and having a certain kind of preciousness and pricelessness and sanctity and dignity across the board. So the director of the earth includes all groups, all genders, all sexual orientations in various ways. I grew up in the Orthodox Jewish tradition, and you're reminding me of one of my favorite stories, uh, rabbinic stories, that says that when Moses parted the sea to free the Israelite slaves from Egypt, the Egyptians were drowning in the sea, and the Israelites started singing with joy, and God said, no, 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 why are you singing while my creations are drowning? They're also precious. That's a powerful moment, though. That's 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 a problem. What I'm talking about. That's exactly right. right. So that's that prophetic tradition that I think you hearken back to. But you know, it sounds from what you're saying, like you mentioned the golden calf in the desert that the Israelites had. You know, that yearning for Egypt in our case would be a focus on capital, a sort of comfortable retreat into neoliberalism, and that's something that I know you've critiqued a lot. You have a very class conscious race analysis compared to a lot of 
mainstream intellectuals, including Black intellectuals. Do you think that the current protest movement is spending enough time talking about class? Well, you know, it depends on, uh, on who you talk to, my dear sister. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That I, anytime I get a chance to speak, I always make the connection between police power and police murder on the one hand with Wall Street power and Wall Street crimes on the other with Pentagon power and Pentagon crimes. So do you get the connection between white supremacy on the ground, predatory capitalists, especially the financial services class, especially the oligarchs and plutocrats, and then you got imperial policies. And this is very important. This is why I think with Brother Ajamu Baraka and the uh, Black Alliance for Peace and Glenn Ford and Margaret uh, Kimberly of, of Black Agenda Report, they represent the Black tradition in its most genuinely radical analysis and critique. And it's always hard for Black radicals to have a prominent position within mainstream Black movements. Mm-hmm. You see the Black Panther Party, League of Revolutionary Black Workers, uh, the Black Welfare Rights Organization, Fannie Lou Hamer, that there was a moment in which they had a prominence. They were never at the center because they're, they're just too much of a threat. The FBI is going to try to kill them. The FBI is going to lie on them. Character assassination. The spies are going to create divisions to try to demonize them and so forth because those are the major threats. You, see, you, you, you can talk all you want about neoliberal black politics and electing X and Y and even overthrowing certain monuments. I mean, all of those things are concessions of the status quo, and I'm not against them. But at the same time, I know they fall far, far, far short of any serious talk about Black freedom for the masses of Black people and for the masses of people. Mm-hmm. See, this is, so I, 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 I love your question. See, this class question is in no way a luxury. I was talking to Brother Carl Dix from Revolutionary Communist Party, Pablo Fakin and others who I uh, get in trouble sometimes because I spend so much time with them, but I love those brothers and sisters. I don't agree with all of them, but I don't agree with anybody. I don't agree with my <laughs> church, the Muslims, the Buddhists, bell hooks, my dear Buddhist sister, I love her to death. We don't agree. But the thing is, we have strong overlap, very strong overlap. But of course, I've got to be true to myself. And being true to myself is that, that genius of Hebrew scripture, that flow of hesed, and knowing that anybody who's on that love train, people are trying to wreck it all the time because it really is a serious threat. I mean, if justice is really what love looks like in public, then you're looking at the world through the lens of the rest of the earth, through the lens of the poor, through the lens of the prisoner, and so on. That I said, my, my strong leftist brothers and sisters, any justice that's only justice soon degenerates into something less than justice. So you can be self-righteous in your social justice work and you end up dehumanizing, devaluing, and even demonizing some of your own comrades that you don't agree with because you don't have the deeper connection, which is one of not just love, but a, a solidarity that embraces their fallibility, that embraces the fact that you are going to disagree with them. And there's not going to be any way in which you can deal with that disagreement other than either a democratic cooperation or an authoritarian coercion. And that's part of the authoritarian elements within our own left movement that we have to be highly, highly critical of. 
Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the PropG Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of PropG Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. I've always appreciated a lot your emphasis on fallibility on the one hand, and at the same time, the importance of intellectualism. You've written a lot about what it means to be an intellectual, especially a Black intellectual, but there's so much anti-expert, anti-intellectual sentiment in the U.S. So what role do you see for intellectuals now in responding to the pandemic and the protests? I mean, one to point out is that uh, America's always been a profoundly anti-intellectual civilization. Richard Hofstadter pointed this out with great profound insight in his classic anti-intellectualism in America. Remember there, he draws a distinction between intelligence and intellect. He says Americans love intelligence because it's a manipulative function that allows them to do well, especially in the marketplace. Because America, the business of America's business, Calvin Coolidge says, is one of the few times he's right, actually. Uh, uh, so that in, intelligence is something to be used as a calculating orientation to make certain kinds of discerning insights to make more money for upward mobility for the American dream. Intellect is a interrogation of the most basic assumptions and presuppositions. So intelligence makes immediate evaluations. Intellect evaluates the evaluations. That's how Hofstetter puts it. But it's a deeper move. There's never been space in American civilization, American empire, for serious intellectual presence. Never. That's why our poets, like Emily Dickinson, how can that genius be able to... That's why our greatest novelist in the 19th century, Melville, nobody cares. We go on and on and on. Eliot, right-wing self, but still a poetic genius, he's got to leave the country. I mean, so that it's hard for any intellectual to get a, gain a footing. And of course, for Black intellectuals, it becomes even more challenging because, I mean, you know, Black folk... Uh, Enslaved Africans were not even allowed to learn how to read and write. Mm -hmm. In 1861, only 4% of black folk had literacy uh, under those vicious forms of barbaric uh, white supremacist slavery, you see. 
so that uh, when we do emerge with the word, the question becomes, can we be as enabling and empowering as the musicians are? Because if there's really intellectuals who have been most effective in American culture, there's been much more the musicians than the academicians. Because the musicians have been able to couch stories, narratives, ideas, visions in forms that everyday people in a business-centered civilization having to struggle to survive, they can take it in and be empowered. Whereas the academicians, oh, we so worried about our ranking and what traditions we're going to be promoting vis-a-vis other traditions intellectually that we can't dig deep inside of our own selves and give of ourselves in such a way that our fellow citizens will look at a intellectual and say, my God, I need that intellectual the way my mother needed Louis Armstrong. It sounds like you're saying part of this is on the intellectuals themselves to a little bit step out of purely ivory tower concerns and adopt more of a pragmatic approach to the social, cultural, economic concerns. I know you yourself are steeped in the American tradition of pragmatism and philosophy, which really tries to do just that, tries to focus on the social, cultural, economic concerns, not just more abstract uh, epistemology and metaphysics. But you're also steeped in so many other different philosophical schools like existentialism and Marxism. I'm curious which philosophy you think has the most value to offer us all right now. Mm, Well, I appreciate the question. I think we have to be jazz men and jazz women. We have to be improvisational. I think we have to recognize that, one, the abstract has its role to play. Uh, The general has its role to play. The academy has its role to play. But there's a whole host of other dimensions that have their role to play. See, I believe in engaging the public. That's what it is to be an intellectual who has a calling to engage public life. I think it's no accident that when you actually look at uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he is the great democratic public intellectual of the 19th century. He is the godfather of the American pragmatism that you talked about, that I tried to talk about 30-some years ago in American Evasion of philosophy. So is it pragmatism that you would hold up as the philosophy that has the most to offer us right now? No, because pragmatism has its blind spots. Just so that when you're jazz like none of these schools ever provide enough. They all fall short. Mm -hmm. They all fall short. You need existentialism because you got to deal with death, dread, despair, and disappointment. You're not going to get that in pragmatism for the most part. See, John Dewey on death, you don't hold your breath. (laughs) Like Marxism on death. Marxism is indispensable as an analysis of capitalist modes of production and the relation between production and distribution and consumption and the circulation. Marxism on death, dread, despair. Where do you go when your mama dies? Carl doesn't have too much to say about that. In fact, when his <laughs> wife died, what did he do? He wasn't walking in the Alps with a picture in the back. Ingalls had to hunt him down. He's ready to die. Oh, Carl. <laughs> oh, Carl. You know, somebody been praying for Brother Carl because he's a great prophetic secular figure in the 19th century. But every, every school of thought has its own limitations, its blind spots, its shortcomings. And the question becomes accenting the best in each one. Well, existentialism really emphasizes that it's up to each of us to make choices and take responsibility for our lives. That's and, right. you know, make our own meaning in a world that doesn't come with meaning inherent in it. What do you think that that philosophy 
can teach us about how to handle this current crazy moment? Well, one is, and this is very much Richard Wright, you know, the first great Black literary uh, figure that the white mainstream had to take notice of. Richard Wright was an existentialist at the very deep level. And for him, it was always about digging deep and finding out who you are, manifesting the choices that you make, and then owning those choices, being responsible, being accountable. What does it mean to live a life of answerability? That's inseparable from responsibility. It's the exact opposite today. You see, when you look at a Neil gangster like Trump, he, he, he thinks he can live his whole life with no answerability, no responsibility, no accountability, say anything he wants to get away with it, do anything he wants to get away with. That's what he's been able to make it. The exact opposite. So that existentialism at its best reminds us responsibility, answerability, accountability at the center, but that also means what? It's going to be painful, sister Sega, very painful, because you are really responsible and accountable to yourself. And all your thoughts, your deeds, some of them public and private, that's very, very tough. It's very, very difficult. Do you think that responsibility today in our current situation is inevitably going to have to do with solidarity, both in terms of social distancing to prevent the pandemic from spreading, in terms of solidarity of protest, maybe allyship between non-Black Americans and Black Americans? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You have to have solidarity all the way down. And for me, it's just fundamentally human solidarity. I'm not sure I like the language of allies. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Was John Brown an ally for the Black Freedom Movement? The brother gave his life and his son's to call him an ally is kind of belittle his his sacrifice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rabbi Hesher was not an ally among Luther King Jr. There were two brothers, one from the Jewish tradition, other from, from a black church tradition, that came together as human beings in the name of integrity, honesty, decency. Hesher says, I want to be a decent human being. And I understand that my Jewish tradition to be decent is to be in solidarity with people who are suffering. Not just black, it could be indigenous peoples. It could be the Goyim, I mean, whoever it is, right? <laughs> it's a human decision that you're making. Same is true as a straight brother. Is it, am I just an ally when it comes to gays, brothers and lesbians, sisters and trans? I want to be a decent people. I want to make sh- a person. I want to make sure that their humanity is being affirmed. If they're being mistreated, I've got to speak out. It sounds like you really believe in the power of broad coalitions. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. In fact, if we don't have it, we all going down because they'll divide and conquer. We'll be weaker, feeble. And when the backlash sets in, and it is going to set in, the right wing white backlash, the neo-fascists uh, clamp down, uh, we'll be weaker. We'll be more feeble. So we must have human solidarity with the political and ideological lens in place, but also the moral and spiritual lens that allow us to make contact with each other as human beings, even as we have foes politically. Let me ask you this. Yes. Is the pandemic weakening or strengthening white supremacy? It's both. Both at the same time. Tell me how. Yeah. Because on the one hand, uh, it is revealing just how ugly the combination of predatory capitalism driven by Wall Street greed and the collapse 
of so much of the civic life and public life. And so people are not just polarized, but they're also gangsterized. Well, one of the long traditions in America, if you're going to join a gang and are join a gang for protection, white supremacy is waiting for you. And so we've seen the increase of white supremacist activity. The white supremacy being decreased is, wow, this is just beautiful. This is just majestic, marvelous militancy of brothers and sisters of all colors, especially young brothers and sisters, and one more largely, vanilla. They, they have been Afro-Americanized by the music that they listen to, by the culture that they're exposed to. They've also awakened in terms of the lies that their parents have told them about America and about Black people and so forth. That's increasing. Mm -hmm. So we've got both happening simultaneously. And that's what makes our, 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 our turbulent times also such fascinating times to live. Right. There's a kind of paradoxical relationship going on. Absolutely. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times the predatory capitalism that you've often diagnosed in the U.S. To what extent do you think that America's fixation on capitalism, on prioritizing a reopened economy, has messed up our national response to this pandemic? Well, you know, I, I tried to tell that story in Democracy Matters almost 20 years ago. You know, I could already see the market fundamentalism taking over. I could see the militarism taking over and authoritarianism taking over and the connection between the 800 military bases around the world the United States has. That's what it is to have an empire, the AFRICOM that's expanding in Africa, the subversive counteractivities going on in Latin America. That's what it is to have an empire. But it's silent in the sense that our press won't say a word about it. And the politicians have a bipartisan support of it. Most of the Democratic politicians still support the big military increase of, of Trump as much as they're anti-Trump and others' fears, you see. So you get this bipartisan support too often of that kind of imperial policy. We see the same thing with Wall Street domination of the economy. Uh, uh, and therefore, what is required is some kind of strong presence of visible voices that tells America the truth about itself. That the bombs that we drop in, in, in the Middle East, the bombs that we drop in Asia, land in the United States. 53 cents of every dollar goes to the military budget. So we got 47 cents to deal with education, health care, jobs with a living wage, adequate housing. So we're already got one arm around our backs before we even had a discourse on deep crisis in our society. So that the militarism cannot be separated from domestic policy in this regard. This is what Martin King was pointing out. And that's one reason why they killed him. He understood. It reminds me of when he said, you know, I am not going to segregate my moral interests, what's happening in Vietnam from what's happening in America, right? That's right. But do you think that this American attitudinal or ideological focus on economy at all costs, we have to protect the economy, has that set us back in terms of our pandemic response? I think that's, that's, that's certainly the case in terms of Trump and company, that they're willing to sacrifice the precious young students and the teachers and staff and what have you to get the economy going, to make sure we become another exemplar of 
not just a strong economy, as unequal the, 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 the wealth is distributed. When he talks about the economy, that's still vast wealth inequality being reproduced. But at least it provides some kind of showcase for his um, election possibilities or re-election possibilities. Mm-hmm. But it's not mm-hmm. just Trump. You see, Trump is not to be fetishized. He is a particular American brother of sick soul and a profound narcissistic proclivity. I think he probably suffers from the uh, what Dostoevsky called hell, which is those who suffer from the inability to love in the brothers mm-hmm. Karamazov. But that's just that's just a, a gesture, but that's a very sad affair. You suffer from the inability to love. There's no joy. It's only pleasures in your life. And every moment, moment is a moment of your self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. But he's not alone. That is a profound feature of American culture as a whole. I would say another profound feature of American culture is this sort of libertarian strain in American thought, this yes. focus on individual freedoms, individual liberties and autonomies. Has that hampered our pandemic response in terms of people refusing to wear masks and all of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 again, it's Janet's face. You know, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing because mm. you can see its relation between certain Emersonian strands of being nonconformist. Mm-hmm. A deep distrust of the elites because they might be lying to you. But you have to be able to be discerning. You know, if the elites tell you the earth is flat and you're distrustful, then that can be a good thing. If they tell you it's round and you're distrustful, you got to back off because the evidence is overwhelming, <laughs> right? So that it can go either way so that the, the libertarian, because I, I have strong libertarian uh, implications. That's why I believe that Rush Limbo, Brother Rush, I fight for his right to be wrong. Mm-hmm. He has a, he's got a right to be wrong, but he doesn't have a right to engage in injurious harm. And he has to be rendered accountable. So that the right wing and the left wing, I'm definitely fighting for my left wing brothers and sisters to say what they want to say. We're the ones who have been victimized by massive repression in the 20th century. The Espionage Act, we can go on and on and on. And we see it now with Snowden and Julian Assange and so forth, either under, even under neoliberal Democrats. So that libertarian sensibilities, I think, can be very important. I talk about this with my dear brother, Robbie George, who's a conservative brother, but we both come together on strong support of civil liberties. Mm-hmm. This is crucial, very crucial. But when it takes the form of, I don't believe Dr. Fauci, I don't believe that the CDC and so forth and so on, they say, well, no, there's evidence here. You see, so libertarianism <laughs> can't just go off into fantasy. You've got to be tied to certain kinds of evidential uh, credit, forms of ev- evidential credibility. You know, in terms of evidence, what do we do with the deep abiding American resistance to evidence-based policies that have proven very effective elsewhere, like government-provided basic income, public investment in healthcare? There is this resistance still to that, even now during a pandemic, under the most extreme circumstances. How do we understand that? Yeah, and that's a tough one because, you know, on the one hand, you want to respect people's right to be wrong, but on the other hand, uh, their right to be wrong can lead toward your death. Yes. uh, In terms of spreading of the viruses. And of course, I mean, you know, the fundamental lies, uh, the white supremacist lie that has permeated every nook and cranny. How do you get people to somehow quit denying that reality and understand that that lie has had legs and has now been able to shape and reshape America's past and present. And if it shapes the future, it may not be in America. 
Uh, but, but I would say the same thing about male supremacy. I would say the same thing about any form that dehumanizes. It could be Mexicans, it could be Muslims, it could be Jews, it could be El Salvadorians, it could be uh, Kenyans and so forth, you see. And that's, that's a philosophical question, not just a historical one, because we human beings are constituted in such a way that we're going to channel our fears and anxieties in certain venues. And the question is, will they be democratic venues or will they be anti-democratic ones? Reinhold Niebuhr used to say democracy is an approximate solution to insoluble problems. Mm. And I think he's right about that. We'll never be able to get at the deep roots of our screen. Use the wonderful language of Lorca. And what is the deep roots of our screen? It's the call for help. What Kafka called the death sentence, the sense of feeling that we have to justify ourselves because we're thrown in time and space and we know we're going to die and our mama's going to collapse and our daddy's going to collapse and we're going to undergo this pain. And to be human is to undergo this pain. Who put us in this condition? Was it a fall? Was it whatever it is, whatever story you have, that story is going to cut deeper than just the political story. Because in any political regime, you're still going to have to come to terms with the death of mother and father, the death betrayal of friends, and so forth. So those deeply human issues. But the question is, can we use that that energy that flows from wrestling with those anxieties into democratic? That's the relation between the Socratic energy of questioning, which is very important, the prophetic energy of bearing witness to Hesed, which is indispensable. But then the democratic experiment of accountability, especially of elites on the top. All three of those moments become very, very important ones. And all of us, you know, fall short. We all fall short. We really do. I wonder if philosophy can help us with this. You know, Montaigne said to philosophize is to learn how to die. Can philosophy help us now to deal with our fear of mortality, which I do think is the undercurrent running through so much of our anxiety these days during the pandemic? That is so true, because all the forms of death that are coming at us, physical death, the social death, the psychic death, the spiritual death, all coming at us. You are absolutely right. And philosophy is, is one of the great uh, you know, treasures of the species. Uh, from Africa, where we all begin in the rich traditions of Africa and and, and Asia and, and Europe and indigenous peoples and so forth. And this is where, again, we have to be improvisational. We, we have to be conversant with the best in any of these various traditions, wrestling with what it means to be human, wrestling with death and dread and dogma and domination and so forth. But when you encounter great examples like Montaigne, like Shakespeare, I think the greatest of all in many ways is, is, is Chekhov. But like Toni Morrison, like Richard Wright, who we talked about before, like Muriel Rukeyser, uh, uh, like Isaac Bashev Singer, I mean, all of these are great examples of persons who mustered the courage to think for themselves. Mm. To think for themselves. Now, they knew they had to use parts of a tradition, but they usually use parts of a tradition against other parts of tradition. Because all of us are tied to tradition, the very language we use, the very language we dream is, is a tradition that, 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 that we're part of. So that we need fresh encounters with great figures, great movements, and great institutions. And for many of us, it begins with family. I mean, with me, it begins with mom and dad. Mm-hmm. I was just blessed beyond measure 
to come from Irene and Cliff. So from the very beginning, they taught me that this love thing is not a, it's not a play thing. You know? Love is a form of death. It's something's got to die in you in order for the best to be reborn. And there's so much gangster in me and so much thuggishness in me and so much evil in me that I've got to wrestle with this civil war on the battlefield of my soul every day. I'm hearing a few things in what you're saying. I'm hearing that to learn how to die, we can look to philosophers and artists who came before us and, you know, use their models of living with integrity and thinking critically for themselves. Exactly, exactly. But at, at the same time, you know, we want to even think critically separate from them. We want to ha- lift up our own voice. And that is part of learning how to die in the normal sense in which we mean death, but also how to let die within ourselves our prejudices, our preconceptions, so that we can keep moving forward in this fallibilist mode. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it also means, you know, you have to be willing. I know we just lost Brother John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. He's a towering figure. Yeah. Who always put primacy on moral and spiritual. They're part of not just my tradition, but any tradition that puts primacy on moral and spiritual. But it means uh, that we're, we're willing to, to get in trouble, to take a risk. You see, one of the things about a business culture is uh, uh, it tends to put such a, a stress on money making rather than soul shaping. And to shape your soul, you've got to be willing to take a risk. I mean, Keats understood this so well in the great letter to his brother. Uh, the whole forms of soul making and soul shaping. Uh, that negative capability, being in the midst of facts and reason, but that falls short without any irritable reaching for some kind of easy authority to live in that tension. That's what the great Keats was talking about. And that's precisely where philosophers at their best are. You're going to get in trouble. I mean, you know, you, again, you know, you're going to talk about American empire. Uh, you go, you, you're, going, you're going to talk about AFRICOM, you're going to talk about versus uh, trans, you know, uh, you're willing to, to deal with the delicate issues, the Middle East. How do we talk about that in such a way that we don't fall into the easy traps? Well, Montaigne teaches us, live in the tension. You see, be able to be willing to be misunderstood by a variety of different sides as you stand on your own integrity and say, look, nobody's going to attempt to force me or push me into hating Jews, hating Palestinians, hating Arabs, hating indigenous people, and so forth. But I hate an occupation. It could be Kashmir. It could be Tibet. It could be Sub-Saharan Africa that Morocco now dominates. All of those forms of domination, I'm calling into question. You talk often about the value of moral consistency or constancy. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. you know, I'm glad that you mentioned John Lewis. You know, we just lost this civil rights movement icon, freedom writer, one of the big six who marched alongside MLK. And I think in the wake of losses like that and in the wake of the protests, a lot of people are wondering how we can make real, lasting, substantive progress in this country. You know, how do we make it so that the U.S. doesn't just return to status quo around race yes. in a year from now? How how do you think we can achieve that kind of broader change? Well, one is that we have yet to have a serious discussion 
of what the status quo was, which is to say we haven't had a serious discussion about the Obama administration. The mm-hmm. Obama administration looks just so wonderful in contrast to the neo-fascist gangster in the White House. But we have to come along and say, it was not wonderful at all, you all. Wall Street made big money, trillions of money coming directly, coming out of the Federal Reserve. That, it, 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 that, that, that normalcy needs to be radically called into question. The child poverty rates are still high, still dropping drones in Afghanistan and Libya overthrown and Yemen and so forth. So Latin America still undergoing all kinds of vicious kinds of uh, 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 CIA operations that people really don't want to talk about in terms of overthrowing democratic regimes like Honduras. That's a, the that's a start that happened under Sister Hillary and Obama, you see. And how'd you get a Black Lives Movement under Black President, Black Homeland Security bit, cabinet member, and Black Attorney General? Yes, Obama was better, but better in relation to what? And when we, when we go back to normalcy, that normalcy was shot through with tremendous suffering. And there is a connection between that suffering and the left, of course, being unable to generate a concrete alternative. And so people look to a pseudo-populist but neo-fascist and sensibility, Trump, who's not the ordinary politician, he's certainly not, no. He unsettles the old school conservatives. He unsettles the neoliberal elites. Both of those schools of thought he unsettles, but he is so much more vicious and so much more atrocious in a whole host of different ways. People were looking for an alternative. And of course, you know, most, what is it, 46% of our fellow citizens don't vote at all. So they just completely dropped out of the civic uh, yeah. voting, which is, that, that speaks quite loudly too. It sounds like you're saying that if we want to see lasting change at the status quo, we first have to really interrogate what was that status quo all along. That's, that's and right. that might mean getting into some, as John Lewis would say, good trouble, necessary good trouble, trouble by that's questioning right. even those on the left. And questioning ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's, that's back to your point about fallibility. You see, that's mm-hmm. Emerson and Dewey and James and Elaine Locke. That centrality of questioning oneself. I mean, I just view it as Socratic, but no one civilization has a monopoly on it. There's a whole host of great figures from different cultures who talked about self-examination. But in terms of the impact on the shaping of the West, it really is Socrates. And uh, the Socratic example is a terrifying one, not just because he ends up drinking the hemlock, not just because when you follow through in a Socratic way, there's a good chance that you'll be misunderstood and convicted or crucified <laughs> or shot down or whatever it is. That, that, those are just, that's part of the tragic comic character of our human condition. Uh, that we, we, we mortals tend to be on the one hand deeply attracted to Socratic and prophetic figures. And on the other hand, we're scared to death because they're forcing us to think about some things that we don't think we can deal with. See, that's mm-hmm. Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov. You say you want to be free. You don't really want to be free. It's too much burden. Give me a pie piper. Give me the magic. Give me the authority so I can defer. It makes me so happy that you're mentioning Brothers Karamazov. That is my all-time favorite book. Oh, you've got profound judgment and taste. There's nothing like <laughs> it. But I will tell you this. If you read In the Ravine, the bishop, 
the student by Chekhov. He's going to take you deeper places than even Dostoevsky. He's one of the few. He's taking deeper places. Okay. He'll take you where Dostoevsky's been through, but then he'll take you right back to the everydays. Because Dostoevsky's novels of ideas and his, the clash of ideas, whereas Chekhov is in the quartet and he's in the commonplace, he's in everyday life. And then the steady ache of mis misery, the wrestling with that good morning heartache, blues-like pain. It's a little bit different. That's not Raskolnikov, you see, mm -hmm. on the edge, committed something on the run. And so this is every day. The Chekhov has the Dostoevsky elements shot through the everyday. So that's why he's a comic writer. And Dostoevsky is a tragic writer, you see. I think I need to read some Chekhov after this call. Oh, you, you love Anton. Nobody like it. Nobody like it. <laughs> Let's close by, I want to just talk about the importance of hope versus optimism. I think this is something people are really hungry for right now. And you define optimism as rational and evidence-based, whereas hope is for you an act of courage and imagination that looks beyond what the existing circumstances tell us we can be optimistic for. So for you, what roles do hope and optimism play now in this situation where the pandemic requires an emphasis on evidence, but so much feels unknowable and demands this very high level of hope from us. Mm. Well, one is that we must accent the crucial role that science must play. Mm. And science it has, it has a scientific temperament, not just scientific method, because the method can become dogmatic too. But the temperament is forever Socratic, forever questioning based on evidence, but the evidence is never fully determinative. It's always underdetermined to some degree. So science must play a fundamental role, but there are certain issues that science itself is relatively helpless about. See, and that has to do with the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why not commit suicide tomorrow? Why do you love in this way? Why are you so attached to your mama when you know she's wrong on so many issues, but you take a bullet for her and the heart? I'm talking about my mama. But anybody, but anybody's mama, you don't measure your mama based on scientific evidence. You base it on a love that's a kind of evidence, but that love cuts so much deeper. It's visceral. It's not just cerebral in that way, you see. So we have to be able to acknowledge the roles that each one of these play. And so when you talk about hope, for me, I mean, optimism for me has never been an option. I mean, you can read Candide by the great Voltaire, and you see, you see optimism gone, Pangolosian view of the world long gone. It's always been long gone because there's too much suffering in the world. Dostoevsky's right about that. You know, you've got uh, the young kids at two years old, not just dying, but killed by dogs and so forth and so on. Then you've got so many human beings who live lives with so much wasted potential. You can never get it back. Look at all, think of all of the African bones and bodies that are at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean uh, with the slave trade. So we go on and on and on, you know what I mean? Jewish brothers and sisters in the concentration camps, not just in Germany, but a whole history of pogroms and attacks and so forth and so on. The Kishinev, so we go on and on and on. The Roma, the Hidalas in India, what have you. None of that can generate an optimism for me, ever. But hope is something else, you see, because hope 
It's not spectatorial, it's participatory. You're already in the mess, you're in the funk. What are you going to do? Hope is a verb as much as a virtue. Hope is as much a consequence of your action as it is a source of your action, as Roberto Unger always says. So that hope is something that you find in your immersion and you decide you're going to fight it till the end, no matter what. When you say hope is also a consequence of your action, do you mean that by choosing to act now in this incredibly stressful time with integrity, with accountability, with responsibility, our actions themselves can nurture and fuel hope in us? That's right. Uh-huh. I mean, that's, that's eloquently put. That's exactly right. Hope is about everybody trying to contribute to the pushing, the motion, the momentum, the movement towards something bigger than them that's better, the good, the beautiful. Truth, for myself as a religious person, the holy, the God. Uh, uh, but if you're not in motion, you're a spectator. Well, it doesn't seem to me like you're being a spectator these days. One new project I see you engaged in is you and Professor Trisha Rose have this new podcast, The Tightrope, it's called. That's true. But one and only Professor Trisha Rose. I'll tell you, yeah, she's just extraordinary. We've had a good time. And we're, we're taking off on Thursday with us. This AOC. Oh, I'm telling you, what an interview with Trisha or something else. It's just truth-telling, witness-bearing, justice-seeking, but also joy. Because mm. it's joy in what we do. You got to find joy in spreading hesed. See, if spreading hesed is always just a negative burden, you're not going to be a long-distance runner. You sprint for a little while, then you go back into the norm, and, and you suffer from the conformity and complacency and the cowardliness that we associate with the mainstream that just wants to fit in and be well-adjusted to injustice. No, no, no. We're talking about a joy that will sustain you over against the grain until the worms get your body. That's what we're talking about. And this particular podcast, and it is a temp to broaden the discourse, get beyond the two-party dialogue, get beyond the liberal versus conservative, but also keep track of the arts, the centrality of the arts, the centrality of the moral, the centrality of the of the spiritual and, and the beautiful. Because we need to lift each other up indeed, indeed, indeed. But it has been uplifting to be in conversation with you. You too. I really appreciate you taking time to be with us and our listeners. Thanks so much. Thank you. Salute you now. Stay strong. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you liked today's episode, make sure to catch the next ones by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please share this with your friends and family. If you have feedback about this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me a message on Twitter at Sigal Samuel, or you can email me at sigal.samuel at vox.com. Our editor and producer is Jackson Bierfeld. The show is edited by Albert Ventura. Our executive producer is Liz Nelson. And this show is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Visit vox.com slash podcasts to find more of our shows. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. 
Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash VIYA.